Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The good news is a variety of new and time-tested treatments for diabetes, and Indian Health Service patients have ready access to them. The bad news is Native Americans remain the group with the highest rates of diabetes than any other. And those outside the IHS system face high costs and competition from off-label uses for drugs that are highly effective remedies. Today we'll explore state-of-the-art treatments and research in the fight against diabetes. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A Ute Mountain Ute Tribal Council member has been indicted by a grand jury in Colorado for 12 counts of alleged sexual abuse and assault that took place on the reservation. Chris Clements of KSJD has more. In a special meeting held on Saturday, the council moved to place Lindreth Hemp Wall on unpaid administrative leave indefinitely if he doesn't quickly resign. They also removed Wall from his appointments to boards and commissions and issued a formal reprimand. Wall is a former Montezuma Cortez school board member and a well-known figure in the area. If he's convicted of a felony, he could be removed from the council by a two-thirds vote that would also bar him from serving on it again. The Cortez Journal reported on Sunday that Wall told his four victims he was a healer experienced in traditional healing practices during the alleged sexual acts. I'm Chris Clements. After a nationwide search, First Alaskans Institute, a nonprofit to advance Alaska Native voices, has hired a new leader. KMBA's Hannah Bissett reports. After Liz Medicine Crow announced her departure as CEO of First Alaskans in 2023, the nonprofit began a months long search for the next CEO. She served 15 years in the position. The nonprofit took in applications from across the nation and recently hired Roy Aglohan. The opportunity to continue so much of the great work that First Alaskans does and the tremendous ability that an organization like this has in unifying our community, in programming. And, you know, this gives me a great opportunity to have that statewide impact. Aglohan has a diverse background in nonprofit management with an emphasis on rural health policy, Inupiat language preservation, and child welfare. Regarding his most recent experience, he spoke on what he did at the Rasmussen Foundation. In the last part of my work at Rasmussen, my focus was on bringing national funders to Alaska um, with a lot of our nonprofits and to bring a lot of support to the organizations and to our communities. In his new role as president, he will lead the organization's day-to-day operations while strategizing ways to continue the company's mission of progress for the next 10,000 years. The stack of to-dos on the new president is long, but one of the larger things on the list is looking over the assessments and surveys from a variety of partners and using that data to create a new strategic plan for FAI. Aglohan says the First Alaskans Institute should be a conduit for elders and youth's voices. I think that there's so much important work to be done across Alaska, and many times our youth and our elders know very intimately what that work is because they're the ones who are living in our communities and they're seeing some of the the challenges that happen. He says the future programming of First Alaskans aids in some of these statewide challenges 
whether it be funding or training, and he says that these types of opportunities are priceless in the statewide Indigenous community. I'm Hannah Bissett. A number of Indigenous films are being featured at the 2024 Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. Illuminative, a racial and social justice organization, has a watch list of seven Indigenous-led films featured in six different categories. The films include stories about unmarked Indian residential school graves, native language preservation, and healing. The organization debuted the Indigenous House at last year's festival as a gathering place to recognize and celebrate Native creatives, artists, and industry leaders helping to advance Native representation in film and television. The festival kicked off Thursday and runs through the 28th. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Drugs known as GLP-1 agonists, like Ozempic, are an effective diabetes treatment, helping a patient's body naturally produce insulin. But they're also very popular weight loss drugs, and depending on how you access health care, they may be very difficult to acquire. The Indian Health Service reimburses the high cost of Ozempic for both diabetes and weight loss uses. Medicare and some health insurance providers do not. This hour, we'll talk about the latest in diabetes medications and other treatments. We'll also touch on weight loss drugs and their effectiveness. Are you diabetic or on a medicated weight loss plan? What do you think about using medication to lose weight? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. If you have questions about new diabetes medications or an experience you want to share, you're welcome to call us too, one 800 99 native joining us now from anchorage alaska is dr matthew clark he's the chief medical officer for the alaska area native health service and chair of the ihs national pharmacy and therapeutics committee good morning dr clark and welcome back to nac good morning thank you very much joining us from gainesville florida is tara nelson she's a postdoctoral researcher at the university of florida Hello, Tara. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. And speaking with us from Topeka, Kansas, is Jason Hale. He's a senior research scientist and director for Indigenous Community Engagement with the Institute for Indigenous Studies at Lehigh University. He's from the Prairie Band of Potawatomi. Thanks for joining us, Jason, and welcome to the show as well. Hello. Thank you for having me. 
Dr. Clark, I'd like to begin with you, and let's talk about these supply issues that we're hearing so much about in the news. Ozempic is effective for treating type 2 diabetes, but when celebrities like Oprah and Amy Schumer, they talk about how great it is for losing weight, that seems like it could prompt a rush by the public to get their hands on the on the medication. Is this a problem you have at the Indian Health Service? Thankfully, uh, when it comes to Ozempic, which is the um, FDA-approved formulation of a medication called semaglutide, in the Indian Health Service, at least for our federal facilities and travel facilities that participate in the IHS Pharmaceutical Prime Vendor, uh, we have not had any supply chain issues with the availability of Ozempic, um, again, which is the formulation for the treatment of type 2 diabetes mellitus. Okay. Now, how long has IHS been prescribing Ozempic for weight loss in addition to diabetes? So when we're talking about weight loss management using semaglutides, um, Ozempic is the FDA-approved formulation for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. But there's another FDA-approved formulation called Wagovi, um, which is also semaglutide, but it's in a different, um, in a different dose formulation that is indicated for the treatment of overweight and obesity. Um, IHS providers have been uh, prescribing each of these agents since they became available under FDA approval. Um, semaglutide was added in the Ozempic formulation for the treatment of type 2 diabetes by the IHS National Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee to our national core formulary in 2019. Um, and the Wagovi formulation was added uh, to the IHS National Core Formulary in October of 2023. That said, um, local facilities have been able to prescribe these medications for, for longer than that. And what is it specifically about these medications, Dr. Clark, that makes them so effective for both diabetes and weight loss? So, um, uh, GLP-1 agents, as they're referred to, glucagon-like peptide um, agents, um, are they belong to a group of hormones um, or hormone analogs known as incretin analogs. Incretin is a hormone that's produced naturally by the gut, and it has several actions. One, it stimulates the release of insulin following a meal. Insulin is a hormone uh, that's produced in the pancreas, and it lowers blood sugar. Um, two, um, it blocks the release of another hormone from the pancreas known as glucagon. Um, and glucagon is a hormone that um, prevents the release of sugar from the liver. So those are the ways, um, some of the ways in which it's beneficial for people with type 2 diabetes. Um, incidentally, um, these incretin mimetics also appear to protect and stabilize the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. So it can provide some intermediate and long-term benefits for, for people with type 2 diabetes. In terms of weight management, um, incretins um, and their analogs like, uh, like uh, Ozempic and Wagovi um, can reduce appetite and increase uh, satiety, which is that feeling of fullness um, uh, during or after a meal uh, by working on um, uh, centers in the brain that are responsible for uh, for appetite and for satiety. Okay. Now, weight suppression drugs, I mean, you, you can even get similar 
types of medication over the counter. That stuff has been around for quite a, a long time. But how is it that these dr drugs you're talking about today, it sounds like they're fundamentally different in, in how they function in the body. Sure. So there have been FDA-approved medications for weight management for at least a couple of decades now. Um, so, you know, we're talking today about the glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist, lycozempic and Wagovi. Um, but there are others that have been approved. So Orlistat, for instance, um, which comes in the brand name Zenical as a prescription or over-the-counter under the brand name Alley, um, has been around since at least the early 2000s. And that works by reducing fat absorption from the gut, uh, so a completely different mechanism. Uh, there are also other approved medications like Eusemia, Fentermine, Contraves, uh, that all work by different mechanisms than the GLP-1 uh, agents. Now, the cost is another issue I want to discuss, and I have read that uh, a month's supply of Ozempic in some cases can cost nearly $1,000. Why so much? Why are these medications so expensive and, and for some folks, unaffordable? Sure. So um, let me first draw a distinction between retail costs for medication and the cost of medication uh, within the IHS system of care. So uh, you're referencing the retail cost. Um, IHS is able to uh, participate in a variety of different um, mechanisms that reduce overall costs for the purchase of drugs. One of them is called the federal supply schedule, uh, which is a um, an opportunity for federal programs to reduce their purchasing costs for medications. Of course, patients who seek care at our IHS facilities, um, where we have a pharmacy, which is most, if not all of our facilities, um, receive their medications at no cost. But IHS is able to reduce the overall cost of medication uh, through these types of procurement mechanisms. But getting back to your original question, I think the reason why these medications, the retail cost for these medications is so high is number one, uh, they're, they're effective. Number two, they're in short supply, so you're dealing with you know, supply and demand issues. Uh, but then thirdly, they're, they're on patent, um, and so the, they don't have a whole lot of competition in terms of generics and so forth. So um, this is what we tend to see with medications um, in the uh, early stages after their approval is that when they're under patent, particularly if they're very effective and there's a significant demand, the, the cost is pretty high. Now, the concern is at some point in the future that there will be so many people that are, are using Ozempic and some of these other pharmaceuticals for weight loss that there won't be enough of the drugs available for folks who are suffering from type 2 diabetes. Um, how big a risk do you think that is going forward? So, again, I want to draw the distinction between uh, folks who uh, get their care from a federal IHS site or um, travel programs that participate in the IHS pharmaceutical prime vendor. Um, while there are national and international supply chain constraints um, with some of these medications, um, particularly those that are formulated for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, um, IHS has not had a problem procuring um, the, the medications such as Ozempic uh, for, for folks who have type 2 diabetes. Now, in the retail sector, um, that, that's not necessarily the case. So, um, you know, if, if folks are uh, trying to procure these types of medications 
in the retail sector, they may have difficulty getting them because of, uh, you know, not only production-related supply chain issues, but the fact that um, sometimes, uh, likely inappropriately, uh, medications that are formulated for the treatment of diabetes are being used off-label uh, for the treatment of uh, overweight and obesity, which can uh, put some additional supply chain constraints on the formulations for, for diabetic folks. And Dr. Clark, for somebody who might not fall within the IHS system or might not have uh, the right kind of medical insurance and they can't afford uh, the cost of some of these medications, what are some alternatives? So uh, in terms of treatment of diabetes, there are many classes of FDA-approved medications that are effective um, for lowering blood sugar. So the GLP-1 agents, which is what we've been talking about, is just one class, but there's other classes like the biguanides, which include metformin, um, most folks will be familiar with, uh, the sulfonylureas, uh, there, there's a group called the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, and, and others. I won't go down the full list, but um, really what I recommend for people who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes um, in addition to their lifestyle efforts, so diet and exercise uh, and weight management, is that they um, develop a plan uh, for medication treatment for their diabetes in, in consultation with their health care provider that suits their individual needs. All right. You are listening to Native America Calling. It is Friday, and we are learning about GLP-1 agonists. These are drugs like Ozempic that are effective for both diabetes and also weight loss. Give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. The recent bitter cold snap that took over much of the country highlights the urgent need to provide housing for Native Americans who lack adequate shelter. But several efforts to provide either temporary or long-term housing face resistance from local officials. We'll check in with some of those at a crossroads on the next Native America Calling. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You are listening to Native America Calling. Diabetes medications and other treatments are our topics today with our first guest, Dr. Matthew Clark, Chief Medical Officer for the Alaska Area Native Health Service. There are quite a few options available. Do you have questions or experiences you'd like to share with other listeners? Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Dr. Clark, let's talk a little bit more about Ozempic and some of these other drugs as weight loss drugs. And I, I'm imagining right now somebody listening to the show, and we're, we're hearing all these stories, right? Friends and relatives and celebrities with these amazing stories about going on these drugs and losing just enormous amounts of weight, and they don't have to exercise. It, it's like almost like magic. The weight just comes off. 
and uh, it does seem concerning, and I, I imagine there are some risks involved. So what kind of conversations should a patient have with their doctors before starting on one of these weight loss drug plans? Sure, it's a, it's a great question. So, um, you know, when we're talking about weight management, um, it has always been true that the foundation of weight management is, is lifestyle intervention. So, um, you know, it's very important for people to understand that um, there's no easy uh, way around um, trying to uh, manage weight. Uh, it does require um, things like diet and exercise. But there are uh, effective FDA-approved medications that can supplement lifestyle modification um, to, uh, to help people who are struggling um, with uh, overweight and, and with obesity, and, and particularly those people who have weight-related complications like high blood pressure or high cholesterol or diabetes. Uh, so um, we always advocate um, a, an approach that includes lifestyle management, and then for a select group of people, uh, particularly those who have a body mass index of 27 or above and a coexisting weight-related chronic health condition, or people with a body mass index of 30 or above um, to consult with their healthcare provider about their eligibility for one of these FDA-approved weight loss medications. All right. Now, this is where, where, where I have a hard time, and I struggle personally with this issue because I, I'm overweight, and I've battled with my weight my entire life. I've uh, gained a lot of weight and I've lost it all like probably about five or six times. It's just a yo-yo. And, and so many of my friends, so many of my relatives are overweight. And, and for almost everybody that I've ever met, and even statistically, if you look at the numbers, most people who lose weight, they gain it back. And you go to the doctor and, and like you said, it's, it's always this lifestyle approach, right? Like you need to diet and exercise more. Every doctor's office, that's always what I've been told. But yet it's frustrating because we know statistically that most people will gain that weight back. So and it begs the question, doctor. I mean, like in what other sphere of medicine do doctors prescribe a cure to everyone with a common illness that has such a low rate of effectiveness? Is that a fair question? So, um, I mean, I want to draw a distinction between... Um, the, the challenges, the very real challenges that people with, um, uh, with overweight and obesity um, have to deal with, but also then the effectiveness of the medication. So first of all, you know, I think it's absolutely critical as a healthcare provider um, to recognize that, um, that overweight is, um, is not an easy condition to, to manage. And I think we need to have empathy and compassion for people who struggle with overweight uh, conditions. In terms of the effectiveness of the medications, you know, I, I mentioned earlier there are a variety of approved medications, these newer medications, the GLP-1 agents that we've been talking about, um, and a related medication that combines uh, GLP-1 and, and, um, and what's called GIP and other incretin uh, analog called terzepatide have actually been shown to be pretty effective in helping people to lose weight. So if we're talking about chronic health conditions for which there are effective, safe medications, um, you know, we could draw a, a similarity with things like hypertension, for instance. Um, 
know, again, a chronic condition for which there are effective medications, but for which lifestyle management is, is equally important. Well, Dr. Clark, really appreciate all of your insights and expertise here on our show today. Let's move on now to Tara Nelson, who is down in Gainesville, Florida, doctoral researcher, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Florida. And Tara, thank you again for joining us. And we heard Dr. Clark talk about access to diabetes medication for people who use the Indian Health Service. Now, you reviewed how people with diabetes stick to their medicine regimen, and there's some good news. What did you find? Absolutely. Um, so as a team, we were looking at those different factors that may impact someone's ability to take diabetes medication as prescribed. Um, and in our search, we were finding few studies that did include American Indian participants. So that was our goal was to help fill that gap to really understand those factors um, that may impact medication taking. Um, and so some of the, the facilitators that we found or what individuals really found helpful for medication taking included things like the patient's knowledge or belief that the medication was effective. Um, and so this is really speaking to the importance of diabetes self-management education. Um, and it was noted in one study that easy to understand information about medications and side effects were important. Um, also, assistance from care partners were noted to be helpful, so assistance from like a spouse or a family member, um, and then also assistance from uh, community health workers. So one study, um, although it was a small sample, did find that partnership between pharmacists and community health worker, really led by the patient, um, reduced over 60% of their barriers to taking medication. Um, so those are a few things. Also diabetes empowerment and, and patient-centered care. So these are collaborative approaches to allow individuals to really partner with their provider to make those informed decisions. So these were both linked to taking medication as prescribed, um, which I think is important information for healthcare staff and organizations to really partner with patients to focus on their specific health needs um, and desired health outcomes. Um, and we also found that self-efficacy or a person's belief to succeed or complete a task was also helpful for um, taking mm -hmm. medication. Now, I find that really interesting, the psychosomatic component. So just that personal belief can make a huge yeah. difference in the effectiveness. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what was the motivation for doing this review? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so... Our, it really started with, um, as a team, you know, we were looking at some of those characteristics um, of the different factors um, that may impact someone's ability to take medication. Um, and we just weren't finding that many studies. And this is something that we're hoping, um, you know, we have a research project going on right now with a tribal partner and really hoping to look at further. So we really wanted to look at what is the current evidence and how can we move forward? Um, and, you know, we found that we're really uh, moving forward with looking at a, um, the barriers and the facilitators or what's helpful from a patient perspective to really understand their specific um, needs. Tara, let's talk more about the financial barriers that you uncovered. What exactly are they and any possible solutions? Yeah, great question. So uh, we did find financial barriers were reported by uh, some participants from urban settings, um, medically underserved communities, and those without access to medications and care by tribal facilities or IHS. 
Um, and when, in one of our recent studies, we looked at adherence to oral diabetes medication uh, using pharmacy records for those receiving tribal health services and did find higher adherence to medication than is often reported, um, which we may think may be attributed to not having cost and access to medications as a barrier. Okay. Now, you mentioned the, the oral oral treatment. Now, the oral treatment as opposed to the injections, like what we talked about earlier with Dr. Clark and Ozempic, is there a difference or are they both equally effective? Yeah, great question. So um, I will say that the study that I'm referring to that we did was in uh, 2017 and 2018. So really prior to um, the widespread use of um, uh, within this facility of the GLP-1 agonist. And then also we didn't measure uh, adherence to insulin because that it, it can be difficult measuring adherence to, to insulin due to some issues with accuracy. So um, it really didn't have to do with the, um, anything except that the, that's what we could measure. Um, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, let me bring Dr. Clark in quickly to chime in. Dr. Clark, uh, Oral ingestion of some of these diabetic medications versus injections, what's more effective? So um, if we're talking about the GLP-1 agents, there's, there's really just um, one option for, for oral treatment, for specifically FDA-approved uh, medication for type 2 diabetes, and that's Rebelsis, which is another formulation of semaglutide. It's a once-daily uh, oral medication. Um, this is in comparison to the Ozempic formulation, which is the once-weekly injection. Um, and, you know, it, it depends a little bit on adherence um, to the medication. So, um, you know, the most effective formulation is going to be the one that you're willing to take. So, in the case of Ozempic, you know, a once-weekly injection as opposed to a once-daily um, oral medication, um, you know, if, if, if you're following the recommended dosing and dosing interval, um, then then there's reasonable comparison that, that both are effective. Okay. And as long as you can handle those needles, right? True. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some people, uh, some people like the idea of a once-weekly injection instead of a once-daily pill, um, but not everyone. Okay. Now, Tara, um, back to your research, uh, what findings now are you looking ahead to and what type of follow-ups are you going to be able to work on now that you've got this initial body of data to go from? Yes. So um, after uh, completion of this review, we're really looking forward at understanding what's working well from the perspective of individuals with type 2 diabetes so that we can really then work with patients to develop ways that are useful for them. Um, and yeah, we're interested in learning more about, uh, again, from the perspective of the patient uh, to really help meet their healthcare goals. And Tara, what, what are the, the respondents and the patient? I mean, what did they tell you? I'm just curious, you know, just a, a personal perspective. I mean, what, what are these folks going through? And in addition to just, you know, some of these questions and barriers with regard to medication, I mean, what's, what's it like for these folks? I mean, what, what are their most pressing concerns? Sure. So um, this was a review, so we didn't we didn't personally uh, speak with these patients. However, that's what we plan to do in the future. Um, but some things that were noted were, um, you know, burden of diabetes treatment was reported as a barrier. Um, also, like we discussed, uh, um, you know, some patients did experience a fear of 
um, injecting insulin uh, came up. Um, also experiencing adverse effects of medication. Uh, so that was something that came up in um, quite a few studies. And uh, we, all, we did a recent study that found medications with the lowest adherence were um, metformin and acarbose, which um, we're thinking may be attributed to some of those side effects of medication. So again, speaking with a member of your healthcare team, if you are experiencing side effects, to really find those medications that uh, will work for you. And where can folks go to get more information and get more facts so they can make informed decisions? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm wondering if Dr. Clark may have some good patient resources to um, that would be that would be important to share. Um, I often use the American Diabetes Association. I think they have a lot of good patient resources there. Okay, thank you, Tara. Dr. Clark, any other resources uh, that the public can access? I would say the same thing. I think the American Diabetes Association has an excellent uh, resource um, to provide uh, appropriate information to patients. You know, healthcare providers have access to patient education materials as well. Um, for instance, there's a, um, a very popular program called Up to Date. Um, that provides patient education materials that you can typically access through your healthcare provider as, uh, as well. And, and that provides, I think the key is making sure that you get accurate information. Um, so, uh, you know, I think either of those would be, would be reasonable choices. All right. Thank you. And Tara, another interesting component I found in your research is that um, in many cases, we might think that folks that living Native people living in urban areas might have better access and, and fewer of these barriers that you list. But in many cases, you learned that um, folks actually in rural Native communities, um, actually, there was better medical adherence and um, there was a better infrastructure there within the health service to serve those folks. Yeah, yes, that that is true. Um, I think, you know, it. One of those reasons may be financial barriers for people living in urban areas, although there may be uh, physical proximity that doesn't always mean that they um, it's affordable. So I think that is definitely uh, one one factor that may that may influence that. All right, Dr. Clark, um, for somebody listening to the show right now that might not have insurance and and maybe they're not in an Indian Health Service uh, area office, they don't have accessibility to a clinic or a hospital, but they're a Native person, where can they go? So I think it depends a little bit on where they're located. Um, what I'd like to be able to say is that um, American Indian Alaska Native people are always welcome at our, at our IHS uh, sites and programs, but I understand that there are some parts of the country where those are not um, close by. Um, and so then, you know, my next question for, for this hypothetical person would be, um, what other resources might you be eligible for? Um, might you have uh, employer-provided health insurance? Might you uh, be uh, eligible for Medicaid or, or Medicare, depending on age and income level? Um, you know, I think uh, those would be the, the next route uh, for accessing care. And then, um, you know, there's also a network of federally qualified health centers throughout the country that are operated by our sister agency, uh, HRSA, and, and those uh, facilities uh, provide access to um, 
underserved populations. So I think there are a variety of options, but it depends a little bit on where you're located and what your individual circumstances might be. Today, we're talking about drugs like Ozempic and some of these other pharmaceuticals that can be used both for treating diabetes and also have gained growing popularity with regard to weight loss. And if you have any personal experience dealing with either of these drugs, uh, maybe you're diabetic or maybe you are struggling with a weight condition, we would sure like to hear your story. We'd like to get your experience on the air. We'd like to know how you have been impacted by these drugs and how your life has been impacted, whether it's been a favorable experience, maybe it hasn't been a favorable experience. Either way, we would really like to hear your thoughts, your comments, or if you have any questions for Dr. Clark or Tara Nelson, you're welcome to ask those as well. Now, we're going to take a short break and we'll come back. We're going to talk with Jason Hale, who is the Senior Research Scientist and a Director for Indigenous Community Engagement with the Institute for Indigenous Studies at Lehigh University. Stay with us. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and we're talking about diabetes medications. Some of these drugs, like Ozempic and Monjaro, are effective for weight loss as well. And experts say that such drugs do not eliminate the need for dietary controls for people with diabetes. If you have experience using any of these medications for either diabetes or weight loss, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Let's talk now with Jason Hale who is with the Institute for Indigenous Studies at Lehigh University. Jason, thank you again for joining our show. And you also worked on a weight loss study a few years ago. Tell us how you conducted your research. 
Yeah, we we ran a pilot uh, study uh, several years ago to culturally tailor and modify uh, weight loss intervention for American Indian communities, um, and that you know just to improve weight loss related behaviors. Uh, for those who didn't qualify for the diabetes prevention program that's uh, available in a lot of Native communities. Okay, good information. And Jason, I mean, what, what were some of the perceptions that you uncovered with regard to people and weight loss? I mean, it's such an emotional topic. Like I shared earlier, I've struggled with this. So many of my friends and family have too. What did you uncover? That it's a struggle, I know we've been talking about you know how, how people do struggle with it, but I, I think people, if there's some elements familiar to them within a weight loss intervention or a program, or the people who do delivering it are, are actually Native who come from those experiences, or we found there's some more success. We found the successes where people who maintain and stayed in the program um, and, and were able to gain more and and have that group support uh, as they move forward in in a, in a weight loss uh I guess weight loss journey or, or shot taking a you know shot at trying to lose some weight. Okay. Now I, I talked earlier a little bit about you know you go to the doctor and they say lose weight, exercise more, but for so many people it just doesn't work long term. They still gain weight back. So I think for a lot of people this idea that you can take a pill and you can shed a lot of pounds that way. It's a really attractive option, but what are some of the trade-offs of both methods uh, that you talk to people about for weight loss? Well, I think our intervention, we, we kind of stuck to what, you know, traditional behavior uh, change to, to improve uh, weight loss, weight management. Um, that's, you know, our, our project. We, we took the diabetes prevention program we took a modified modified version of this that was being used for that was originally tailored for african americans um and so each group we ran several iterations of the program making modifications as we went with the different groups to sort of tailor including to try to include more elements that would be familiar to american indian folks and so um i i think it's Partly, we, we wanted to include and improve those outcomes for people who, who weren't eligible for diabetes prevention program. But I, I think we're finding that when people go into a program, it, it can be they're at a point where, you know, they want to lose weight. Most of the time, just straight up diet and exercise isn't helping. For some reason, they're, they're not mm-hmm. not getting through to them, they're, they're not able to do that. And it's, there's so many barriers for a lot of people in our communities to, you know, have a place to exercise, to actually understand and, and navigate food. You know, like when I say navigate food, to understand what is going to be contribute to weight gain, what things are, are going to help your body, you know. And, and I think uncovering some of those, Within our program, I think uncovering some of those barriers or, or maybe misguided information or even uncovering how people were raised in the foods that they were either forced to eat because that's all they had 
or you know just kind of learned these learned food ways that people um, have developed over you know the years of growing up in communities with less access to food, less access to workout facilities, even environments where walking, going for a walk is challenging or hard. Um, All right. All right. Well, Jason, I also want to ask you about uh, maybe the significance of indigenous foods, because I know that's a growing movement in a lot of Native communities. But before we get to that, we've got a couple of callers on the line. Let's go ahead and take these calls. First up is Chanupa up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, thank you for taking this call. Brother and sister, the young lady, I think her name's Miss Nelson, if I'm catching it correctly, and then that uh, other brother, um, that the older gentleman. Listen, guys, I went and got my people programmed into drinking the sap tea off of cedar brush and pine tree. And Dr. Raphael, okay, he's out in California, introduced me to this a product called Garden of Life. They got this raw organic meal, okay? It also has all the nutrients. When I got my people back into it, they start losing weight and their bodies start changing, okay, going into traditional remedy. Because tree sap in the pine and cedar cleans every artery in your body, your pancreas, your liver, your kidney, and so forth. It flushes them out, get all them in toxins that are bad. And then washing it out in a good, you know, diet is the Garden of Life has a product out there called Raw Meal, which Dr. Raphael shared with me. Mm-hmm. And if you all look it up, Garden of Life, out in, I think, Parkway, California, Cal- uh, Palm Beach, Palm Beach. But all these nutrients are in this product. That's what I give to my elders today. See, to give it to them, and it's almost like a tang, this raw meal. And so that also helps our people balance their diet and get them to eat a one healthy meal per day, solid, with all your you know, nutrients that you like. If you like carrots, peas, you know, salary, all that with real strong protein because we plains like what the people were meat eaters. That's why our buffalo had all the necessities, wild game and so forth. So okay. that's what I wanted to contribute to you guys. And thank you for this show. This is about diabetes. Hokahe. Hokahe. Thank you, Chanupa. Let's take our next caller, Bryce, who is also in South Dakota, listening on station KIPI in Dupree, Cheyenne River is. Hello, Bryce. Uh, I like you. Uh, I'm a elected official on this IRA government. So elected official, state, federal, tribe, we're privy to a lot of this information that comes into these governments. And uh, diabetes, I uh, I believe doing my research, I went back, I went into the military, and I, I caught a virus. They said from the trees. And when I got out of the military, I, I got, it led up to bronchitis, into asthma. So then here you go, take all of these uh, asthmatic uh, medicines that I just uh, uh, dolls out to everybody. But one of the medicines over the doctor. Now we're talking 90s, you know, about 30 years now, dealing with uh, diabetes. And just recently. I had uh, exposure to some toxins for about 30 minutes or so, 40 minutes, and uh, it, I, I uh, got to a point where it kind of put me down for a couple of days, the toxins. 
I was about ready to call the ambulance, and, and I, I broke. You know, I sweated it out. I got up. I felt better. And then I went to see my primary there at IHS, mm-hmm. and he could be And he had a, a, a vaccine-induced injury to his finger, he was telling me about. And all that time, my A1C dropped two points. For the okay. last three, four months, I dropped 20 pounds. So what Chinupa just said about the pancreas and the fatty tissues around the pancreas, if the white um, Western medicine and our indigenous medicines, with some of these uh, IHS doctors, they kind of look down on us. I'm not saying, you know, just that one out of ten, you know, there's always that uh, one that, sure, that's sure. Uh, not there, you know, not don't don't respect us, don't want to hear us. And yet they're practicing medicine, and I tell them that's not healthcare. Bryce, uh, appreciate your call here, and uh, we want to remind our listeners: um, you know, this is a show we're providing information, but any types of medical, serious medical decisions that you make, make sure you do consult with a physician. And Jason, I'd like you to respond to our callers because this is a viewpoint. These are viewpoints that we hear a lot on our show and a lot of Native communities. This um, belief and this faith that our traditional remedies are are better options in some cases than than drugs and pharmaceuticals. What's your thought? I, I think there's some room, and, and we definitely need to be open to what people's experiences are with some of these uh, natural remedies because um, I, I think dismissing anything that come from our elders or anything like that would be a mistake. And if if they're saying that these are working, I, I feel like we need to be open to that and, and uh, use some of these and use some of that knowledge. I mean, that's what we do in our in our institute. We, we kind of take what elders and what people in the community are saying uh, and like it, we'll give it a shot. You know, if they say something's working, um, I think it's something that needs to be looked at and, and actually um, given. Uh, at least given a chance. To sure, sure. People. Yeah. Without, I mean, I mean, a lot. I mean, we're talking about some of these drugs that may not mesh well with, you know, natives or, or anything. But you know, a lot of you know, we talked about returning to some traditional ways, and I think we need to be open to that and to, in a careful, you know, careful way. Well, let's continue talking about traditional modalities. And earlier, I mentioned indigenous foods, and we're seeing so many Native communities now that are making an effort, an effort with, with food co-ops and community gardens. And uh, your research, have you found any information with regard to the importance of indigenous foods, healthier foods, and weight loss? Yeah, I mean, everything that comes from our, our traditional foods, we're, we're, we're good for us. And, and I, I think people, it's kind of gained popularity for communities to return to those gardenings and, and people are, you know, there's funding out there now for people to uh, start gardening projects in their communities and that kind of thing. But I, it, it's a great movement and, and I, I, you know, I back it and I myself and our communities are also doing that, you know, personally here in my own community. But I, I think we, we, we've got to understand what we're up against with trying to return to a diet that, that's traditional. We, I, I feel like in a lot of our, in our pilot study, a lot of the things we talked about was food addiction, 
a lot of our people, I think everybody, not just natives, but are addicted, become addicted to fast food, become addicted to sugar beverages, the high fructose corn syrup. They, there's so many additives in foods nowadays that mm-hmm. lights up reward centers in our brains, in our bodies. We become like we need maybe different. I've always tried to think about looking at it as addictions um, to food is another way or path, you know, to try to modify people's behaviors or at least learn those mechanisms to see what we can do to kind of mitigate that, those urges that people get. Because yeah. that's what <laughs> tends to happen. Now, I, th- and, I think you're... real thing among, I mean, the addictions in our communities. I mean, we don't talk about food addiction, I don't think, enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I can totally relate to what you're describing because I feel like the, this food now, I mean, it's so salty and it's so sugary. You just, as soon as you take one bite, you just can't stop. That's how I feel at any rate. So I can totally relate. We got time for one more caller, Mario, who is listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico on KUNM. Hello, Mario. Hey, yeah. Thank you for taking my call. Um, just want to say that you know, our lives way from way before we, you know, we grew up hauling wood and with no, with no chainsaw, you know, having to do everything by hand, um, really, uh, basically the hard, you know, wood lumberjack lifestyle, especially the Navajo Nation. So food was fuel back then, but now we don't work those, those ways no more. And so I think, you know, um, probably it's good hearing a discussion today of approaching food. And uh, my uncles, you know, they, they approach it in the warrior way. Old Indian way, as Chanupa was talking about, of mm. that of just barely of not being slave to hunger to be uh, or sleep or all these other things. And so, with Indian way of thinking, not just with the plant for anything, but in your own mind, to be able to be strong to hunger, sleep, and all these other things that affect us as humans, I think is a good foundation to. Uh, as the as the medical doctor on the line was talking about, um, maybe when these other things are are, are only supplemental, I think that's our uh, our way forward. Uh, treating food as a spiritual thing to to power us to make our prayers happen. I think that's a, a good way to go about it, and not to overdo it because we can. You know, uh, I'm guilty. I'm a big guy. Uh, <laughs> love to eat, but you know. Um, you but, and I um, both, hey, brother. So, Hello, brothers. Well, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that call, Mario. And, you know, we've we've talked about a lot of different approaches here. We started off the show and uh, we talked a lot about the pharmaceuticals and the drugs, specifically with regard to weight loss and diabetes. But then, of course, uh, some of these traditional modalities, uh, culturally specific health care and just the importance of a healthy lifestyle and Mario talks about that spirituality and Chanupa as well, this uh, the warrior mentality, the old Indian style. And uh, I think somewhere here there is some common ground for all of our listeners and anybody dealing with any of these health issues to hold on to. So really appreciate all of our guests and callers who joined us today. Our guests again were Dr. Matthew Clark, Jason Hale, and Tara Nelson. Join us on NAC again Monday, when we'll begin the week with a discussion about the difficulty in some cities to protect unsheltered Native Americans against bitter winter conditions. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. 
Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwana Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe, relaxing weekend and bundle up out there if it's cold. I'm Sean Spruce. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org who support this show. Keshe, Happy New Year. Look at the big one, Yayu Pachitonatekana, Yayu Yana, Itonanton exercise, and Anton Yutech Yates Natonatekana, Yamton Aqua Mossi Yantekuna, Nancolo Teonatonatekanata, Eastern Healthcare Takaf in Awanoa. Look at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Donapena Itulokanawe, Elaqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.